Welcome to the Level 10 Podcast. I'm Chris Gould, wholesaling and entrepreneurial expert. The Level 10 Podcast is focused on interviewing top entrepreneurs across multiple industries to identify what makes their businesses successful. Head over to level10official.com to learn about our courses, coaching, and much more. Hi, I'm Chris Gould. Welcome to the Level 10 Podcast, the place to elevate your business. I'm joined by Caleb Gomez from Oak Ridge Development. Uh, we've worked on a couple of deals together, um, and he is in the middle of a pivot um, based on what's happened in the market since um, he got a flip under contract and started working on it. So we're going to dive into that here, but welcome to the podcast, Caleb. Thanks, man. I appreciate you, Chris, for, for having me on here. Uh, excited to be here. Excited to chat a little bit more about what you've got going on in your world as well as as well as mine. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, I think a good starting point um, for anyone I want to interview is to take me back to the beginning, how you got started in sure. real estate. And let's go from there. Yeah. So, you know, I wasn't always, you know, interested in real estate. I actually had kind of a poor experience. You know, um, my parents were, you know, super blue collar when I was growing up. And, you know, this is something we've chatted about before previously as well. But you know, my, uh, my father always worked, you know, blue collar jobs and kind of the way he was able to get ahead in life was essentially flipping houses. And that came from my grandfather as well, you know, uh, handyman stuff, you know, small electrical plumbing, things like that, drywall. I mean, all the bells and whistles he knows how to do. And since I was a kid, he's always had a big garage, with like a bunch of tools in it. And, you know, when I was growing up, I saw my parents do a couple of flips, have a couple of rentals. And I honestly hated it because like, most of the time when I had at least experience or was like exposed to that, it was my dad like calling me at like 8 a.m. on a on a Saturday morning telling me I had to go somewhere and like go pick up a bunch of garbage and stuff. And he's like, Caleb, I need you down here. Like, we really need you to help. And I was, you know, in high school or college, whenever it was, whenever they, they were doing their projects, you know, I'd get up and and uh, have to go to to, you know, whatever property they were working on and pretty much do manual labor for like five or six hours you know, when I was in high school and in, and in college. And I just honestly hated that. So, you know, from there, I, I uh, really, you know, I didn't really go to school for real estate. I didn't really get super involved with it until a little bit later in life. And, you know, it kind of dawned on me one day that, you know, it's a, it's a really excellent vehicle to get ahead in life and, you know, change the things that uh, are in your environment in, in a lot of different ways. And I think for me, you know, uh, kind of on a, on a professional level, I worked a, a very, you know, low paying job when I got out of college, I have, you know, an MBA and I was kind of excited to hit the workforce after I finished there, uh, at, at school with my MBA. And, you know, when I was at this job, it was really a dream experience for me. It was what I wanted to do. It's what I had done internships for. And I realized that, you know, the things that I dreamed of as a kid and the things that I wanted in life, financial freedom and the freedom to do the things that I love hobbies and stuff like that required more capital and more money uh to to have those things and i wasn't going to be able to get there from my my uh my w2 job that i had at that time and really the light bulb went off for me you know aside from all the stuff that i mentioned a minute ago was you know when covid came around and i actually was kind of let go of that opportunity that i thought was my dream job and i was going to stay there forever um but realized that you know there's a lot of other stuff out there and you know 
didn't really set me sour or anything like that when I was laid off of that opportunity. But during COVID, you know, there was a period of time there where I was kind of searching for my next opportunity or searching for another industry to work in. And I sat down and, you know, I read a bunch of the bigger pockets books. I listened to a bunch of podcasts, pretty much how most people start. Um, but just tapped into my, my network of friends that were real estate agents or that were doing flips in other markets that maybe I went to school with, things like that. Started some of those conversations really early and took about three or four months of just not being employed during COVID when everyone was at home, just applying for jobs and listening to real estate podcasts and doing my studying. And it really hit home for me what really when I would say about nine months after I started that process, it wasn't like overnight. A lot of people talk about, oh, you know, I went from zero to 60 in a year and, uh, you know, no one really talks about like the pre-work that they do. And so I had done a bunch of pre-work and it took me about nine, 10 months to get off of that studying analysis paralysis, you know, kind of mode to getting into my first deal. And there was a lot of other things that happened between then, you know, figuring out what kind of property I wanted to purchase, figuring out exactly what I wanted to, you know, really get into. Did I want to, you know, house hack or what strategy that I want to use, but uh, you know, ultimately just did some networking and, you know, kind of made it happen. And, you know, we're here about a year and a half after that time kind of took place a year and a half into my venture of real estate and, you know, made some mistakes, but it's all about, I think, muscle memory and figuring out how to uh, just get experience with stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I love what you said about the pre-work not being talked about a lot of time, you know, I mean, there were years where it was just me figuring it out and it's, you know, that's a tough time because it can feel like you're just not really making any progress. Um, so I appreciate you mentioning that there and I totally resonate with that. Um, you know, I know that there was a deal you did in Manitou Springs. So let's talk about that deal that you did. So Manitou Springs is in Colorado, for those of you that don't know, um, what you learned there and sort of, how about this? Take me back to like right before you purchased it. What were the kind of numbers and figures in your head? And then what actually transpired and what did you learn from that? Yeah, that was a really interesting property. So Manitou Springs is a is a really cool area. It's actually my hometown where I grew up. I grew up here in Colorado. And, you know, the, the area that we were looking in, you know, Colorado in general had kind of popped off like most markets or at least most desirable markets did over COVID. And the, it was just about a year ago that we we ended up or I you know ended up selling it but um, essentially this property was kind of an inside connection of mine's family's property so it was a kind of a distant neighbor of my parents and you know they had you know an unfortunate situation where uh, there was a, a grandmother and a grandfather that, that had lived there and the grandfather had passed away and the grandmother lived in this 4,000 square foot house and really didn't need that much, that much property. And so, you know, the, the family was kind of the, the son of those two individuals was kind of tasked with managing a lot of the distribution of the stuff there. And, you know, my parents had known that individual for some time as well as I did. I mean, when I was growing up, I actually used to go shovel their driveway of snow. So it was someone that was somewhat close to us and we were very I would say familiar with talking to them and it wasn't like a cold call, but you know, it was essentially an, an off market deal. They needed to unload this property and they needed to pretty much get rid of it quickly because you know, the grandmother needed some funds to get into a, a nursing home. She, mm -hmm. she just 
didn't need to live in that large of a house at that point in time. Going into specifically some of the numbers here, the property is in a gated community in, you know, on the upper parts of Manitou Springs. It was a custom built home. It was a newer home and it was built, I believe in 2004, 2006. And so for me, you know, just getting into real estate, that was essentially, you know, my, my second or third deal that I had done. And it was a really hard property to run comps on just to be straightforward. It was very hard to run comps. It was like, well, there's a house up the street that sold for this price, you know, four months ago. And there was a, a house that sold down the street two months ago, but nothing was like really comparable. It was all custom homes in this area. And it's all, you know, a very unique neighborhood because there's kind of one road that goes up it that has other roads branch off of it. And there's just really a, a it's, it's like comping up a, a rural property. There's nothing really that's comparable to it, except for maybe other neighborhoods or things like that. And so at that time, the market was really hot and I had really big eyes. I had just smashed one of the deals that I had uh, done prior and I was excited to get hopped back into the, you know, the whole process. And um, I was going in it with the opportunity or the, the, the mindset that if I could get them for any price off market, it would be a steal of a deal because everything was getting hyped up at that point in time. Everything that hit the market was going for 15, 20, 30% over ask which in my young career, I kind of just assumed that, that that's how it was going to be with this property. But, you know, taking a 10,000 foot view, that's not, you know, unfortunately, that's not what happened with that property. So we ended up getting it under contract, I believe at 600K, which is a pretty decent price for this home. It didn't have anything super stellar in it. It had a weird floor plan. And I just, my my first instinct was just to get it under contract for, you know, a price that I thought was, you know, anything under 650 or 700, I was ready to sign on the dotted line. And so I, I got under contract for 600 K and, and, you know, used a, a hard money loan to purchase it. But then I had a couple of connections of mine, a mentor and some other people that work in real estate, give me their opinion on the property. He did some work, didn't need a full gut, but it also wasn't up to, you know, the top of market of the area, top of market in that area is like, you know, marble countertops, stainless steel, everything, almost custom built, you know, kitchens and things like that. And, you know, this property really didn't have any of that stuff in it. And so I had a couple of friends and connections come take a look at the property to see kind of what the game plan was. And ultimately what came out of a lot of those conversations was you either sink 200K in this and make it a you know, $1.1 million property, or you just resell it on the market and try and get, you know, another individual in here, much like wholetailing the, the, um, you know, the strategy of getting something off market and then listing it yourself. Uh, that That's essentially what we ended up doing. So of those two options didn't have the 200 or 150 to put into it and just decided to, you know, do some small updates here and there, some, you know, kind of elbow grease stuff, fix some small things around the property, some small electrical things, wasn't a major flip, I would say, but uh, did need a little bit of work to essentially pass an inspection for, you know, reselling it. And so we hit the market and had a lot of people come take a look at it. It was kind of a pain to get people in there because it's not, you know, a publicly accessible neighborhood. You have to let people in through the gate and stuff like that. And so um, had a lot of showings and you know, had really one solid offer come through and it was, you know, 
pretty much uh, about 100K over. Um, we bought it for 600 and, you know, the offer went under contract for about 700, I believe. Maybe it was 690. Uh, and we're like, okay, this isn't the worst thing in the world. You know, we're still, still going to take some change off the top here. And then, you know, they inspected it. It was a first time home buyer. And so they came back and said, you know, this is wrong and that's wrong and kind of beat us up on the uh, inspection process. And, mm -hmm. you know, it got to the point where this process pretty much took, it was on the market for about two or three weeks. And then, you know, the inspection and then the closing, you know, this whole process was about two, two and a half months. And so when we got all this stuff back, we really just decided, you know, I, I brought this to a couple of mentors of mine as well. And, you know, we came to the conclusion that it would be probably best to cut our losses on the property. Um, you know, it ultimately ended up boiling down to the fact that there's, you know, there's commissions and closing costs and things like that. You have to pay when you go sell a property that, that pretty much ate into the profit as well as the holding costs of the property. Mm. And so uh, we ended up taking a loss on it, but got it off of, you know, off of my plate before it really hit the dead time of like November and December, which was pretty important just because mortgage payment there was, I think it was 5,100 or 4,800. It was a pretty hefty mortgage payment um, just because we were using a hard money loan, but tough experience, but learned a lot in that process. Understanding, I think that really teed it off for me to understand, comprehend, I would say is a better word of you make your money in real estate when you buy. Definitely. I had, I had the mentality of since it was an off market deal, wide eyes, that it was going to be a stellar deal just because it was off market and these people just needed to get out of the house. And I really, at that time was afraid to ask for something, you know, lower in price mm -hmm. when I thought that it was like, Oh, well maybe I'll just, you know, I'm, I don't want to lose this deal because it's such a great opportunity when in reality, you know, it just boils down to the numbers and what you actually think you can make on it and not being afraid to ask what that number is, regardless if it's an on-market deal or an off-market deal. Yeah, that's a couple key points I pulled out from that. One is custom homes in those types of neighborhoods, up in the hills, up in the mountains. It's like, you know, even just being on the other side of the street can change the view and just there's an extra two or 300K in value or lose 200 to 300k in value. So I, I see that. And I guess what I'd be curious about is how much did you reach out to mentors or did you have mentors when you were buying on the front end that you were getting advice or were you kind of just, you were listening to podcasts and maybe you just thought you had your numbers, right? Like, can you take me back to that point? Yeah. Yeah. I, I did have an individual who has been pretty influential influential in my real estate career so far kind of take a look at the numbers and he wasn't familiar with the area so he was really green light about it excited about it and you know other than that i had a, a couple of friends that work in the springs market take a look at the numbers and they also you know kind of gave me a thumbs up but i really didn't have the resources at that time that i have now where i can get multiple people looking at a deal that i have under contract that have my best interest in mind, as well as, you know, have solid background and knowledge of running comps and what's going on in the market. Yeah. So I did, you know, to answer the question, I did to an extent, but, you know, probably not the amount of resources that I would have liked to have had or what I have now. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, one piece of advice I would give people in that similar position is like, 
if you're asking for mentors what they think and they like it that much, be like, cool, why don't you invest in it with me? You know, you mm -hmm. want to put up the down payment, want to split the down payment. And so right. I feel like that's when the rubber hits the road. Um, when you can really be like, if you believe in it that much, why don't you participate? And obviously not everyone has that cash, but like asking the five people you get their opinion on, well, would you invest in this yourself? Do you want to do this deal with me? It's kind of like, I'll look at a deal quickly and be like, yeah, I mean, I would maybe do it, I guess. But like, if you ask me to invest in it, I'm going to be, you know, a beautiful mind up there with all my charts and graphs and everything to make it, make right. sure that it's going to make sense. So, um, so yeah, that's just, it's interesting kind of looking back. And so um, your exit on that deal, once you finally sold it and everything, um, how long were you in the deal total? And then what was the profit or loss on that? How long I was in the deal, I think we had closed at the end of August last year and we unloaded it. You know, I, I we were able to get everything squared away and maybe the closing was at the end of October. Okay. Uh, so, you know, maybe, what is that, about two and a half months, maybe somewhere okay. in there, maybe okay. two months. Um, and then profit and loss, we, we were in the, we were in the red there. Unfortunately, like I said, we were really just out of pocket closing costs. Everything kind of equated for, you know, 6% for the, for the buying and selling agent. Uh, you know, when you sell a property, you have to pay the buyer's, excuse me, the, the buyer's agent 3% and then your agent, the selling agent 3%. So, you know, 6% of the total cost there. And then I think there was a handful of closing costs in there, five or $6,000. I can't remember what the exact numbers were. That pretty much equated to totally even. So it was actually like a clean slate if you just look at the numbers uh, for what the sale was, but there was a holding cost involved. And for those of you that you know flip or people that flip, you know, closing or excuse me, carrying costs are one of the huge things you got to weigh into holding a property while you're working on it or while you're you know, trying to sell it. And so we were just, you know, ultimately was out of pocket there for the, you know, two month mortgage, two months of mortgage payment. So, right. um, and, you know, I actually believe that it was closer to maybe 7,000 that it was a total loss or 6,000, which was a total loss. And, you know, really at the time I had uh, just received some stock options from my W2 job and it was a nice bump. And obviously what they offered me when I got on with the job, but that was how I paid that. So the mortgage was paid each month from those, just me selling those stock options, which wasn't the worst thing in the world. You know, it didn't hurt the bank account as much, but that money could have probably gone to a better cause, you know, could have done something better in the stock market or, you know, just the opportunity cost there, just kind of using that for that wasn't ideal, mm -hmm. but we made it work. And, you know, it was a learning experience for me and the purchase process. And I mean, I did the whole deal when we purchased it myself. You know, I didn't use any real estate agent. I just copied and pasted, you know, a Colorado buy and sell real estate, um, you know, document. I've, I got one from, uh, I actually got a, a, a more recent one and I believe it's actually available on the internet. Um, but did that whole deal myself, you know, right up to the title company, found the title company, figured out, you know, what the dates were that we were going to close, essentially did what a, a you know, an agent mm -hmm. does but just did it myself. And so that was kind of one of the, I guess, <laughs> pros of that whole process was, was able to close that on pretty much my own. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, you know, you look at it, if it was, let's call it seven K lost. I mean, 
you learned in that one, you make your money when you buy. I think that's a good segue into um, talking about the Sheridan deal that um, you're, you just finished the refi on that. So I don't want to give the story away, but um, maybe you could take me back to the beginning of that. And obviously we've worked together on that deal, but um, you know, there's, it's quite a story of how the numbers changed and you renegotiated and how long it had been on the market. So you take me back the first day that you found out about this deal and you reached out to them. How, how did you handle the process? Yeah, kind of a funny story here. So, so with the Sheridan property, this is a property here in Denver in a very excellent neighborhood. It's on a busy street, which kind of draw the, you know, drew the, the value back a little bit, but it's in a very, you know, expensive neighborhood to live in here in Denver. It's right next to Sloan's Lake for those of you that are familiar. Uh, but I was looking for, you know, a flip last spring and just kind of browsing around. Things were still pretty, you know, inflated at that point in time. And I came across this listing on the MLS that didn't actually have a photo of the property. It was like a photo of this very popular restaurant down the street from it. And I was like, okay, this is suspect for sure. Like what is going on here? Like is, you know, does this agent know what's going on? And so I, I looked at it and I was like, you know, it's, it's, it was listed as a two bedroom, one bath, very poor photos on the actual listing. Once you clicked through the one of the restaurant, it was like photos of the house and, I was like, they must have shot this with, you know, an iPhone like 10 or something, or like an iPhone 7. I don't even know. It was yeah. like very poor photos. You could tell they weren't professionally done. The description was pretty subpar as well. And I was like, you know, I don't really know, but maybe these are kind of like, maybe this is a budget agent and it, they didn't even, you know, they had the, sometimes when you have a budget agent that takes less commissions, they'll have you do all the groundwork and then they just list it on the MLS for you. And so that kind of triggered a couple of things in my mind. I was like, you know, maybe we could take a look at this and see if there's an, an opportunity here. And I believe they originally had it listed at 600. And this was last, I believe, March or April. Um, and, you know, I hit my agent up here in Denver and I said, hey, you know, let's go take a look at this. You know, let's let's just at least entertain this at whatever it was listed. I think they were at 600. And then when I actually saw it, it was at 550. And so we went into the property, took a look at it, you know, it was uh, kind of an interesting piece of work. It was just real old, had a bunch of old stuff in it. They didn't clean out very much of the uh, stuff at the house. And at the time I didn't know this, but it was a family selling it for, it was kind of like an estate sale. Family was selling it on behalf of their father who had passed away. And so we took a look at it, weird floor plan, but you know, essentially what we did is, is came back to them. The selling agent actually wasn't even located here in Denver. So challenge everyone that takes a look at the MLS a lot. If you're looking for flips or good deals, there's a lot of red flags that come along with that stuff. And most of the time it's poor photos or poor descriptions or photos that aren't even of the property itself. That can give you a pretty good sign that these people are just trying to sell their property as quick as possible, or, you know, might just need some help financially. Anyway, we we looked at, at the property and I believe they were at 550 at the time. And I think we offered 520 and mm. maybe it was 510 initially. And they came back and said, sorry, we've accepted another offer. Uh, you know, we're going to go this direction. And I said, great, you know, no big deal. We'll figure out something uh, down the road for me. And so essentially what happened is they accept an offer. Uh, an offer from a wholesaler who tried to take it off the MLS, get it under contract, and then flip it to, you know, 
her or his investor list and the the I think it was a seven day contract. Um, and so they had seven days to obviously turn that around and they couldn't. And then the property actually went back on the market and I was just taking a look at it. Uh, I didn't hear from my agents at all that it had gone back in the market or they had even reached back out to, to my agents. And, you know, our offer was the only other offer at that time. And I saw it got relisted and I was like, I thought I just put an offer onto that and it went under contract. And so I called um, my agent here and he said, that's real weird. Let me give him a call. And so he called them up again and they said, uh, oh yeah, sorry for I to let you know, we relisted it. The, you know, the, the wholesaler couldn't, couldn't get it unloaded. And, you know, that's also pro you know, probably due that they were using a, a broker or not, not a broker, a, a budget agent or one of those budget brokerages that just list properties and don't really mind what happens with them. Anyway, they were like, pause yeah. on that real quick. Cause I think, yeah, you know, people, if you're thinking about using a broker, that's going to do it for less, this, this has been my experience as well. It's like the fact that their next best offer, they didn't even follow up with it. Like, isn't that's insane to think about. That's their literally their one job. This is where realtors yeah. really drive me crazy when they don't do like just this bare minimum work to make thousands of dollars. So um, just word to the wise on using e either pay the full price or you can do something called brokerless.com, L-E-S-S, brokerless.com. And you can list on there for like 200 bucks. And then the uh, calls will come to you personally. And so you're fielding them. And that's a great way to save the buyer's agent fee of 3%, especially on a house like Caleb's, if it's selling for 600, that's going to save you, you know, $18,000. So uh, word of the wise on that, either manage it yourself, but still get it listed on the MLS brokerlist.com, or just pay the person so that they actually prioritize it. It's kind of low key insulting every time you go with a discount broker. Um, and so it's just, it's just, a a something that people don't understand also, um, you know, offering less on the, uh, buyer's agent commission, um, you know, Oh, we're only doing 2%. It's like some agents, I know they're not technically allowed to do this, but they won't even show the property to their clients. Cause you're going to try, you're going to cheap out and try to save $4,000 or whatever or less. So not to cut you off, Kayla, but I just feel like it's really important to note, like mm -hmm. the, the discount brokers are just, they're a nightmare usually. Yeah, no. And, and that's kind of what turned me on to you know, th this whole process and shining the light on that whole situation on how maybe there's some holes in the system that you can actually find good deals directly mm -hmm. on the MLS. 100%. So, you know, picking up where, where I left off, essentially what happened, the listing agent didn't call my agent back. We found out that it went back on the MLS and my agent called them up and said, hey, you know, we'll do you for 500. I think it, maybe it was 505. And they were like, sure. And I said, great, I'll use a hard money loan here. We're going to go in. We'll close this in 14 days. We're going to do an inspection, but not a full inspection. That way it doesn't, you know, we don't drag this process out. I know you guys were just trying to get out of this. It's not your property. And so we went in and did an inspection. And, you know, there really wasn't anything majorly wrong with the property. It was just really old. It needed some small work here and there. And it was a, but, you know, it was a full gut, but it wasn't like the foundation is broken in half. You know, the roof has collapsed. It wasn't anything of that you know, matter. And 
you know, I saw that as an opportunity that, you know, hey, this is not really going to sell for top of market or at least what they're asking for without a lot of somewhat costly updates. I mean, when you're talking about rehabbing a whole house, there's a lot of small things that add up, right? You know, there's quite a few inexpensive items when there's 45 of them that becomes a $10,000 tab. Hmm. So, you know, that's the approach that we took going back to chat with them and letting them know that, hey, there was actually some things wrong with the property that, you know, I am going to have to pick up the tab for and fix if this is going to be something that is going to be, you know, top of market. And so what we did is we ended up coming back to them after they accepted our 505 or maybe 500 offer. I can't remember the specific number. And we actually came in at 450. And that was what the comps were going for, uh, or at least, you know, some of the comps in the area were you know, 570, 580, 600, 620, 650. And, you know, I came in with a very conservative number at 450. And they said, well, they came back to us after about 24 hours of thinking about it, which at this point in time, I had thought I probably just lost the offer. They were going to bail and relist it. And they came back and said, uh, we'll do 475. And in my mind, I was like, wow, this is a really good deal. You know, I'm actually getting it for a discount for much more than they actually were willing to sell it for. And it sounds like they just want to get it off their plate. But I kind of looked at the numbers again and I was like, you know, we really need to be sitting close to 450. 455 is kind of really where I want to be at. And, you know, I worked with my my agent and, you know, told him kind of what I was feeling. And he said, let's go, let's put in a counter offer, which is the this would be technically the third counter offer for just 455 let them know this is where we're at this is where the numbers make sense for us and we put it in and i was like you know it's going to be a waiting game from here i think i put that offer in at you know maybe 10 in the morning they called us back at i don't know 10 30 and they said we'll take we'll we'll do you for 455 wow um, you know and at that time that it's separate from the whole result of the of the property and the situation but gave me a lot of confidence in why people actually want to sell their property and you know what's listed on the price tag when you look at zillow and the mls and things like that for whatever property a commercial one a car wash a single family a multifamily, you know that's really just a starting point point. and i think in a lot of people's minds they price themselves out of flips or they think of other you know ways to not buy a property when it's most of the time just a conversation that needs to be had and this last opportunity shared and kind of shine the light on that for me and kind of taught me, hey, you know what, if it says 450, maybe they're only going to take 450. But you know what, maybe if I can close in seven or 14 days, they're going to take 390 or 385, something like that. So, yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. I, I loved watching that all go down and like, especially, you know, the 475 is quite the tease. And it's kind of like a lot of people cave at that time. But to just go back and only give 5K more, I think was really, really important. Um, so I really, um, I just love hearing that you did that because it's like, you know, you just, you don't want to get needy for a deal. And I think the more time we spend assessing it and people that are involved, it's easy to get needy and emotional and then start, you know, fudging your numbers a little bit and being like, well, if it goes over list and if I cut these corners and, you know, you have to also consider like the stress that you're putting yourself under during this. And I mean, next, I want to ask you about that and, and managing the rehab. You kind of GC'd the whole thing. Um, but, you know, something that I don't think that people consider is like, what's your time worth? And also what's your mental health worth as you go through these processes? And it's like, you know, 
if you're like best case scenario, 50 worst case scenario, I'd make 10,000 and it's going to take you three months. You know, it's not just the time, it's the stress. And so, um, anyways, going back, you, you acquire the house and you've got a scope lined up. Talk to me about like how that process went and like, what were the challenges you experienced there? Yeah. So if anyone snags a deal anywhere, you know, you've got this just full of ambition, excited to get started, you know, and that only lasts so long. And I think one of the important things that you really have to consider, whether you're flipping houses or you're wholesaling or you're, you know, buying and renting them, buy and hold, whatever your process is, uh, is to really just get comfortable with just not having that drive all the time. It's mm. like the motivation is not always there for me to go work on a property or to have tough conversations or to, you know, sit down and figure out all this stuff. It's not always there. And I think, you know, for me in this last opportunity, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I did learn, you know, from kind of a technical perspective, um, whether it's, you know, kind of finding some plumbing leaks or, you know, figuring out how to better lay tile or, you know, make things look a little bit more trimmed up. But I think the more important thing here in, in the process that I took this go around, uh, it, it was really all over the place, I think, initially. And where the point that I'm getting at in my career is fine tuning my process. And, you know, I think for me initially, it was pretty high expectations for timelines. And that doesn't always work because you're relying on quite a few other people. And there's a lot of other moving pieces in the process of flipping a house or rehabbing a house that are completely out of your control. And I think for me, you know, one of the big things that I would like to highlight here is understanding that there's a lot of things that are out of your control. And as soon as you can take your step away, you know, just mentally step out of the, the thought process of having to always be in control the much more happier you're going to be in this space, you know, from kind of a mental health perspective. And you're going to allow yourself to focus on the things that do matter that are in your control, you know. And a lot of times I feel like in my experience doing this stuff, there is a lot of things that are out of your control, but there's also a lot of things that are in your control. And if you're worried about the things that are out of your control, you're just going to screw up your own process and how efficiently you can get jobs done or how efficiently you can accomplish something. And you know, with this whole house flip, it was, you know, top to bottom of a lot of stuff. I mean, we took out a, or excuse me, we put in a wall, we took out another wall, we, you know, made it more of an, a premium, just a premium draw, just because of the area, you know, stainless steel appliances, nice wood, new floors, you know, we refinished some wood flooring that was in there. It was all original, which is huge value add for maybe some folks that don't know if you ever get into a house and you peel up the carpet, and there's original wood floor take all that stuff out and refinish it because it looks beautiful and people really like that stuff now. But it was, it was a pretty big job. There was some unfinished basement area that we had to do and, you know, a lot of painting, a lot of texturing, you know, full new bathroom. We didn't touch any of the real major things, but it was, you know, a, a pretty large job compared to what I'm used to in doing a full flip. It was 1700 square feet, which, you know, maybe some experienced flippers, that's a walk in the park for them. But for me, it was, you know, something a little bit larger, just because there's a lot of extra square footage there takes, you know, maybe an extra week to do something that I thought maybe took one week, right, or an extra 10 days to do something that I thought took five days, right. So that was something that I, I realized this go around as well. But I think the the big shining things that, you know, I mentioned a minute ago, understanding that you, you've got to take yourself 
and understand that there's a lot of things that are going to be out of your control and you can't really, you can't burden yourself by worrying about the things that are out of your control. That's like one huge takeaway. I think I had this last go around and, you know, you really just don't know what you don't know. This was my first project where we did the whole outside and we did, you know, some other bells and whistles that I wasn't used to putting into properties. And some of those things took longer than I expected. And some of those things took shorter than I expected. And, you know, I think it's, uh, you know, like we talk about sometimes just, you know, outside of this stuff is, you know, paying for your education, you know, and unfortunately for this situation, it didn't turn out terribly, didn't turn out as plan A, but, you know, we pivoted and went to plan B, but understanding stuff from really having your hands on it is second to none. You know, you can't read a book like a bigger pockets book and, you know, have all this stuff in the back of your pocket. You, you can't work on your communication with your contractors while you're not doing it. You know, you can't read a book and say, you got to say this after this person says this, no, that's not going to work. You know, you've got to be in there doing the work, whether it's putting tile on the wall, coordinating when the next guy is going to show up, figuring out your budgets, figuring out when the right time to sell is all that sort of stuff and figuring out, you know, really how you can implement that. For me, currently, I'm still doing it while I have a, a day job, but figuring out how you put that into your life, whether you have a significant other, whether you have a day job, whether you have a family at home, whether you're commuting 45 minutes, whether it's your next door neighbor's house or however you, you navigate that stuff. It's, it's about figuring out how you can plug that into your life and make it work and continuously make it work. Yeah. I love that, man. That's, that's just such good takeaways. And you're right. Like you can't learn without doing it. Um, I mean, you can learn some stuff, but the mastery comes from getting slapped around and then realizing like, Oh shit, I need to pivot. I need to like, I, I can't keep doing things in this exact same way. And like, you know, for me, the process with wholesaling has just been like, it starts off where you're kind of like, Oh, this makes sense as the best thing to do. Right. And then you do it and you're like, Oh God, no, that's, I should absolutely not do it that way. You know, like one thing for me was like working with friends right off the, in the beginning where like they started as a friend. And then I was like, let's do business together. And this sort of like grabbing the guy who happens to be standing next to you and be like, you can work for me just because I know you. And there's, there's an ease and a simplicity in that. And then so, so what I found is that I would trade like the pain of like really finding the right person in the beginning. So I, I get to skip that. And then I'm dealing with this low level pain for months and months and months working or a year working with them or whatever, versus like really holding out dealing with all of this stress of like finding the right person that takes a month and then I get them and then I have almost no stress because they're actually helping me as opposed to being just another problem I have to manage. And so um, that's just one thing that I found uh, going through that process. So um, talk to me about you listed the property. Um, so, so you bought it for 455. How much did you put in it? And then what were your holding costs? And then what was it listed for? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I don't have everything right in front of me, but 455 purchase price, you know, holding costs, rehab, everything like that. We were closer to 70 ish. And, you know, I, I didn't do a quick analysis or a full analysis of like the time that I did each day or whatever that I was there, you know, and we listed it for 600 and got a couple of offers was really entertaining you know, but it, it really took a tough shift because, you know, and the more people I'm talking to, it's, you know, I, 
I don't know, it's humbling being in the position that I'm in, but a lot of folks that I've talked to really have never seen interest rates rise like this, which obviously inhibits buyer power and changes the market when you look at buyers and sellers and the demand for what a $500,000 house is worth or the demand for a million dollar house, right? So, you know, I I uh, decided not to sell, really just something that kind of came down to it, worked through getting a, a an offer accepted and we were really jazzed up about it. And it kind of came down to, they just wanted some stuff that was really kind of out of, out of the books, you know, that there was like a bunch of requests and it was like, you know, this is an astronomical property in a great neighborhood, you know, and, and we're fighting tooth and nail to, to move this. But if I can financially figure out how to, you know, dance around the situation and make a little bit of a pivot to hold on to it, it's going to be so much more worth it when, you know, maybe the market levels out a little bit, buyer confidence goes up a little bit more, obviously, in in more premium markets, there's, you know, a little bit more drastic change in value when things like this come around. But, you know, kind of came down to it. And, you know, I, I listened to my family a lot, and they're just astronomical people. Um, but they were the first ones that kind of told me, you know, maybe you should think about moving in there and kind of figuring out exactly, you know, what next steps are, kind of just seeing if we can hold on to it for a little bit of time. And I chatted with a couple of other individuals, you know, that, that had been mentors to me and they, most of them actually in the first place told me to hold on to the property because it's in such an appreciating neighborhood and it's such a up and coming, it's not even up and coming, it's already came and it's very expensive to live in the area and the values have just gone up so much over the past couple of years. And so, you know, we would have taken home, you know, I would have, I would have had a solid profit on the property you know, I think it was going to be about 25K for essentially what we could have sold it for with the first accepted offer. But boiled down to it, the the sweat equity that I put into it and the stress and the overall effort I would say I put into this property was probably not worth the, you know, the the short change in, in money that I would have gotten, you know, in exchange of moving that property. And I think when I look at it in the scheme of things, I think it's an interesting situation to be in because I thought I was going to walk away with six digits in my bank account, which would have been great. But, you know, I thought I was going to be a hotshot real estate investor. We're going to be on to the next five deals real quickly. And that's just not how it worked out, you know, and it's humbling to be in my situation. It's great because I'm going to have an excellent opportunity and I will, you know, set up for success moving forward with the properties that I do have. But it's also humbling because for me, it's, I had this, big expectation that I was going to be, you know, just skyrocketed in my real estate investing career without any setbacks. It's just, it's, it's not an escalator. And I kind of had that notion going into it. And, you know, it's, it's not necessarily a step back, but it's, it's humbling for me over the past couple of weeks when I've been transitioning over uh, with everything going on, it's, you know, one of those things that it's like, all right, let's get back to the drawing board. Let's figure out what worked for us, what didn't work for us, kind of evaluating the process that I took. And, you know, I picked up a bigger pockets book like last week and I was like, I'm going to start this book because I said I was going to start it when I was flipping this house and I didn't. Um, let's get back and start looking at some numbers again, start running some more comps. You know, I can't sit on the sidelines forever. And it's like, you know, unfortunately the situation didn't work out as plan A, but it's going to be perfectly fine with plan B. Mm. And I think that that's, you know, going back to you, you almost bought that house at 510. And it's mm -hmm. like, 
that 60K discount that you got on it, you know, when you buy right, you have more options. You can actually execute a plan A, B, or C. And it's like, you know, if it had sold at top of market, that's plan A. And that makes you the six figures. If it sells a little low, that's plan B. And you maybe just make a little bit. Plan Z, if you if you refi it, plan C, if you refi it, that's uh, uh, available too, but only because you bought right. And so I just think that that's really something to highlight of like, I remember when you were first starting off this deal, we talked about all of those different options, plan A, B, and C as potential outcomes that would be okay. And it just happened to end on plan C, but um, a lot of folks, I, the thing that's cool about what's happened with you is like, you're still good and you're going to, you can keep flowing and like, you can go do another project. But like, mm -hmm. if you make the mistake of a not buying right and only trying to flip based on, you know, everything going magically perfect, you've complete the rehab in 30 days. It goes 25 K over market. You sell with a discount broker. They don't ask for any repairs to happen. Your contractors show up on time every day and do everything they say they're going to do. <laughs> you know? It's like the if that's the game plan you have, you know, God bless you and good luck. But like, I just don't think that's a good way to build a successful strategy. Like, I think numbers should be built upon worst case scenario. And if worst case scenario, you'll be okay, do the deal. But if worst case scenario, you're going to be in the red, don't get involved. And it's like, that's where that neediness comes in is like, especially if like, you've been trying to hunt for a deal, you can't find one, you feel like you got one. We can start getting really, you know, like Gollum from Lord of the Rings, my precious, my precious. Right. And it's just like, you got to be willing to kill your darling sometimes with deals. And I think um, you made the right decisions on the front end so that if worst case you ended in plan C, you'd still be all right. And so um, I just think that's really cool because you kind of see that all play out in real time with your story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I, I know I didn't mention this. Essentially, I cashed out, refied the situation, paid obviously the individuals off that were involved in the deal as well as most of the rehab costs, you know, and it's going to work. I mean, it's it's going to work just fine on on paper. And I'm hoping to have that turn into uh, an Airbnb property, which could generate some significant revenue just based on the, the uh, regulations here in Colorado. But I think it's about understanding, you know, just some other options. You know, what you just said is excellent. Worst case scenario, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen here? And am I okay with being in that, you know, in that situation? Like, am I going to lose everything that I have? And, you know, be living on the streets like i'm not sure i would take that deal but i knew in the back of my mind where i was set up with a couple of the other properties that i do have that you know yeah it, it's not going to be ideal but we'll absolutely make it work and i think taking a look at best possible situation probable situation worst possible situation that could happen and understanding that you know spectrum of outcomes when you flip a house probably going to be so much more confident in you know in doing a deal and like you said being okay with what's the worst thing that can happen here and yeah. am i cool with that you know taking place yeah awesome yeah man i'm uh i'm just really happy for you that you know you, you went through this process i'm excited to see what you do next uh, you're always it seems like you are uh exponentially growing with each of these you do so i um, really excited to see that uh 
happen, man. And um, where can we find you and like learn more about um, your business and what all you're doing? Yeah, so I have um, I have some social media pages. We're growing out the it's uh, on TikTok. It's R E underscore K G. And then my website is oakridgecolorado.com, just spelled out. And then we're really, you know, on, on my end of things, I'm really excited to start pushing out just some general content about rehabs and things like that. You know, I think I bring a funny personality. So stay tuned on my TikTok for some probably pretty stupid videos. But, you know, and if anyone has any questions, just slide in my DMs. My my Instagram is just uh, that kid KG. So you know, I'm always happy to be a resource. I think one of the things that I feel like I was just able to take a plunge in and in the first place was to just getting conversations with people that did stuff that I wanted to do. And it takes a lot of nerve, but sometimes it's a little bit easier to just slide in people's DMs than turn around and talk to someone at a networking event or whatever. So if anyone's more comfortable doing that, like, you know, I'm obviously happy to help out. I'm want to be a resource for people that, you know, I'm, I'm nowhere near an expert, but you know, I feel like I can at least tell you probably what not to do, you know, sometimes since I've made some mistakes recently. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. Great to have you and uh, looking forward to seeing what your next project is. Cool. Thanks for having me, Chris. All right, man. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Level 10 Podcast. You can head over to level10official.com to learn more about our courses, coaching, and everything else that we offer. And if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, like, and share with your friends. Go out there and take it to the next level.